Hello, and welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burden, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton here today with Rob Kemmins. Rob is a former Houston police officer and remains an active reserve police captain. Rob has owned and operated Kemmins Investigative Services, Inc., KISS, for over 30 years. KISS is a corporate investigative and security consultant firm licensed by the Texas Department of Public Safety. KISS has been a gold member of the Better Business Bureau for over 25 years and has offices in Houston, LaPorte, and Fort Worth, Texas. One of Kimmins' primary services offered is TSCM, Technical Surveillance Countermeasures, commonly known as debugging. Kimmins operates 75 to 100 of these TSCM sweeps annually and has done so for over 25 years. Kimmins is one of the few security companies in the country that maintains the proper training and equipment to perform this service at a high level for corporations and government entities. Rob, welcome to the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Thank you very much, Fred. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Uh, you were such a big success in our previous podcast. We had to have you back on for another go. <laughs> Rob, let's talk about surveillance. How do you set up and conduct surveillance without being detected as a private investigator? Well, surveillance is actually probably the most difficult thing that we do. And it depends on what the uh, reason is for the surveillance, how we set up. For instance, it can be a corporate uh, espionage case, it can be a uh, dishonest employee, it could be personal injury, it could be family loss. So um, the, the main thing, we need to know what we're trying to achieve and then uh, go to the scene and find a place to set up. And uh, a lot depends as well on the client's budget. If they, if they can afford, uh, justify a couple of vehicles, that makes it much easier. Or if we can legally install a tracker, that makes it much easier. But Oftentimes, we're one car with no tracker, and it's a, it's a challenge, but uh, my guys, a lot of them have been doing it for 20 years, and they do it daily, so they're really good at it. Yeah, I know it's an art. I've done a fair amount of that in my past as well, and why don't you talk through the benefits as well as the disadvantages at times between like a one-person or one-man one women surveillance versus the advantage of having multiple vehicles at your disposal. Just from a tactical perspective, what typically works best? Yeah, obviously uh, the one investigator is more cost effective, and sometimes that's what a client you know can do. But it's very difficult, especially in a city like Houston or any big city, when they when a subject starts moving around. Because you you don't don't want to get up uh, you, you can't glue yourself to their bumper so you have to put some distance between you and all it takes is for them to get through a light and you get caught behind the car at the red light and, and it's over and it gets real frustrating if you sit on someone seven or eight hours 
and you lose them the first 10 minutes. So uh, if you have two vehicles or one vehicle with a tracker, uh, you can be much more effective. You also have less chance of being detected. And there's a lot of things without getting into too much detail. There's a lot of uh, uh, techniques you can use with two or three cars versus one. Let's talk a little bit about how technology can help when it comes to tracking suspects. So, for example, how do you go about installing a tracker on a vehicle surreptitiously? And what are some of the advantages of using a tracker? And then what are some of the obstacles? Well, uh, the obstacle is obviously it has to be legal. So if our client has ownership in the vehicle and will sign a release for us, give us permission to put the tracker on, then it's not usually a problem. There are some gray areas. For instance, if you have a, a husband and wife and they're both on the title, then I defer to the attorney involved with the working board to make sure that we're okay doing it. But uh, trackers are a tremendous aid to an investigator, also for the client, because if we could put a tracker on the vehicle, usually we only need one investigator. If we lose them, we pull them up on our smartphone or tablet and go find them again. And it's a, uh, it's a tremendous aid to investigation and to our clients. Uh, as far as the installation, if we have, we do a lot of surveillance for companies where uh, the, our client, the company owns the vehicle. So if we can go, let's say that the uh, uh, vehicle is parked at their facility at night, we could go out there and install it inside the vehicle and take our time doing it. That, that's an easy installation. If we don't have access to the interior of the vehicle, then normally we're going to put it in a bumper. And that can be done with magnets, with Velcro, uh, that kind of thing. But uh, they've improved the technology so much in the last five to 10 years. They're very accurate. Uh, they're very small, very hard to detect. So uh, another part of our business is we, we do a lot of uh, countermeasure sweeps looking for trackers on cars. So. It's become big business. They're inexpensive. And so we do find a lot of trackers and we use trackers whenever they're, we can legally do it for surveillance. And the little portable trackers, are they about the size of, let's say, a deck of cards? Or smaller. Uh, yes, we've got some that are the size of a silver dollar. Uh, the smaller they are, the, the less battery capacity. Uh, so it depends on the the job, if we know we're going to need that tracker to uh, last 30 days and we're not going to be able to get to it to change it out, then we're going to use a different, a larger tracker. But even that tracker is probably the size of a, a pack of cigarettes with a 60-day battery. If, if we know that we're only going to need the tracker for a few days, we could put a very small tracker on. So it just depends on, on what the uh, application calls for. So besides trackers, you also have a lot of video at your disposal that you can utilize. Why don't you walk us through that kind of technology that also assists in following individuals? Sure. We have a lot of covert uh, video capabilities. I encourage all my investigators to use a drive cam because uh, then you're, you're filming all the time when you're following someone. And if they pull in and they have a quick meeting or they switch cars. You don't always have time to grab your video camera and film. So 
uh, all my investigators use drive cams and then we have other covert uh, video. Uh, but, you know, even your cell phone, the good thing about a cell phone, everybody holds one. So if you're in a restaurant, <coughs> sorry about that, and you want to uh, video the cell phone, a lot of times is, is your best option because nobody pays attention to it. But we have a lot of, uh, let's say we have a, uh, a warehouse and we want 24 seven uh, video, then we can set up something remotely that films 24 seven, even if we're not there. And so again, it depends on what we're trying to accomplish, but there are a lot of options for covert video. Explain what you mean by a drive cam. It's similar to what, what police officers have where most of them are very small. You can hook them to your rear view mirror and, you're filming the car in front of you in the surrounding area the whole time you're, you're moving. And so when you're following somebody, uh, it gives you a big advantage because you're always videoing no matter what happens. Also, we've got cases where let's say you have a minor child and the uh, subject is, is uh, intoxicated and has a child in the car. You can get the mannerisms, the speed, the erratic driving of the the uh, subject and all that can be used, to, you know, in court later. So it's uh, it's a no brainer for to always be shooting video when you're driving and following someone. You know, Rob, uh, I look back on my time as a agent, and we always had surveillance underway somewhere. And inside a city like Washington D.C., there was always federal law enforcement, uh, conducting surveillance on someone, and then you move into the private sector, and there's always uh, that taking place on the streets of pretty much every city around the world, and especially in America. So as it pertains to surveillance, walk us through what kind of cases you would actually deploy a surveillance team on so our listeners have a better understanding of exactly how it's deployed and in what kind of case. Sure. And it's, it's a variety of, uh, we have a pretty diverse client base, so it can be a corporate investigation where there's espionage involved, maybe, uh, or even something as simple as a salesman for one company, double dipping and selling also for a, a competitor. And we, we'll follow him and we'll see who he's meeting with. We'll We'll document with video and try to put together exactly what's going on. Uh, we do a lot of surveillance on workman's comp, personal injury, uh, where a person is claiming to be injured and may or may not be. Uh, so we're, you know, if he's putting a roof on his house, he says he can't walk. And that's, uh, that video could be very useful to, to our client. Yeah, that's called a clue, right? Pretty strong clue. <laughs> we, we, we work a lot of theft and a lot of theft of trade secrets. So we work with law enforcement quite a bit. And as you know, Fred, as a general rule, law enforcement doesn't have the manpower to do a lot of surveillance, especially on something like a theft case. Whereas we can do that if uh, it was funny, we were doing surveillance for a oil company a, a year or two ago and we caught the thieves and they were breaking into the facilities and they were all former employees of this oil company. And so my clients were very happy. But then the VP said, Rob, you know, y'all did a great job. We ended up putting 
uh, some of them had having some of them arrested, put in jail. He said, y'all did a great job, but he said, y'all are just rich man's police. He said, well, the police should be doing this. <laughs> I said, well, I don't even know how to comment on that, but they don't have the manpower to do it. So, um, we're, we're pretty diversified. We do a lot of, uh, my wife is a, uh, family lawyer litigator. So we do work in, uh, divorce cases, but, uh, uh, oftentimes, those are child custody cases where one uh, of the two parties might be accused of not being a fit parent. Maybe they drink too much and drive the kids. Maybe there's drugs involved, whatever the case may be. Or maybe they they have a significant other that has a long criminal history. So we do a lot of that type of work also. So surveillance uh, can come to, into play for numerous uh clients, you know, and, and we're pretty diversified in that way. So we do surveillance for a lot of different reasons. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about Ontech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. This is why we created the Ontech Center for Protective Intelligence. We're regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontic.co slash center. That's ontic.co slash center. And in the corporate uh, security world, there's a lot of uh, counter surveillance that goes on and surveillance detection as it pertains to the protection of a CEO or executives or to a corporate facility as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the kind of person that takes to this business. As you and I know, not everyone is cut out to do this. Well, when, when it comes to surveillance, you're exactly right. I mean, I have people that I, I find out pretty quickly determine that they may or may not be cut out for it. Some, some of the uh, investigators get seen almost every time they go out, they get detected and you can't let that go on for long. Others can't follow. They lose the individual. I, I've told clients before, if we, uh, if they can only authorize one vehicle and we eventually lose a person, I say, well, look, you know, that's going to happen from time to time. When I was a police officer, we might have three or four cars and a helicopter following somebody. We'll still lose them occasionally. But my guys, most of them and, and ladies, have been doing it for a long time. And some are for, former law enforcement, some aren't. But they do a lot more surveillance than most police officers do. So I really think that's the key. They're really good. But a lot of people are just not cut out for it. They'll... Uh, it's very, it can be very boring. And if you leave the scene to go get a burger or whatever, that's when you, you got the subject's going to leave. So you have to have people that are willing to sit there and sit there and sit there. And then when the subject moves, you've got to know how to follow them without being seen and stay with them in most cases. Yeah. And you got to know how to blend into your environment, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, most of the time, if they go into a restaurant or a bar, we're going to want to go in with them. So 
most of my people will carry several different changes of clothes. I mean, what if you're in shorts and, and t-shirt, which I have no problem with, but they go into a five-star restaurant. Well, then you need to be able to change your clothes and get in there. So it's, uh, but people that are good at surveillance, they like it and they like that challenge. And uh, they also feel horrible if they're burned. They do. And we all do. We honestly, we don't get burned very much, but it happens two or three times a year. I will say, though, that almost every time when it happens, uh, it sounds defensive on my part, but it's true. Our our client has said something to somebody and the word gets back. And if they're looking for you when you get out there, then you're dead in the water. So yeah. we always encourage our clients, don't tell anyone. You don't have to tell even somebody you think you can trust because people like to talk about something like a PI. And uh, so most of the time if we're seeing that's what happens or I learned pretty quick that the investigator is just not good at it. We, we have to put him on a different type of job. Rob, what's the longest surveillance operation you've ever worked on a target or on a case? Oh, wow. Good question. Uh, you know, two cases come to mind. One is it was a pipeline company, and it was a fight between uh, litigation between two pipeline companies. And that went on for almost two years, and it went on over four states. And so that was a very good uh, job for us. But another one you wouldn't think of, and if I said the name, you would know him. But obviously, I can't do that. But it's a well-known individual that was going through a divorce and that case lasted over two years and over $400,000 in uh, surveillance fees. So you just never know. Yeah, that's interesting. And did you keep the same team engaged or do you rotate the teams out tactically or how do you operate that way? When, when it's that intense, we try to rotate individuals, but also rotate vehicles. I've got several of my investigators that have two or three cars that they use. That way, if they feel like they've been on the, the subject too long, the next day they'll bring their other car. And generally, you're good. I mean, they're, if they're going to see you, they're going to see your car. And so uh, my investigators that pretty much only do surveillance, they all pretty much have two or three vehicles they can use. In the course of your experience of doing this for so many years now, Rob, when you're following a target that is engaged in some sort of suspected illicit behavior or whatever the case might be, are they usually looking for surveillance? Sometimes they are. And especially if they've been followed before. And, and unfortunately, sometimes we'll take the case on not knowing that they know they've been followed before. So, but we can usually pick up pretty quick. And I'll usually get the call myself and say, hey, talk to the client. This guy's making U turns. He, uh, when he, there's no reason he's going through neighborhoods. I feel like he's trying to, to, we call them heat runs, make heat runs to see if he's being followed. Would you call the client and see if he's previously been followed? And most of the time, oh yeah, yeah, you know, about a year ago. And so, uh, that happens, but we usually can pick up when someone is suspicious. And when that happens, sometimes we just have to either back off for a period of time, or we'll tell the client, you know, this isn't going to work unless we, we can put a tracker on the vehicle. Have you had uh, law enforcement approach your 
security officers in the past and PIs and, you know, whether you get a neighbor that reports a car lurking in the neighborhood or whatever? It, it happens a lot. And if we're in a neighborhood, we're not going to be close to the subject's house. We're going to be maybe a block away. And so those neighbors will call and we, so we deal with the police a lot and uh, we'll tell them who we are. We'll show them an ID. We do, we don't tell them who we're watching and we're not required to. And so sometimes that creates a little tension with police, but uh, most of them are understanding. And, you know, we're, our state board requires a, says we cannot release information like that as far as who we're working for without a subpoena or our client's permission. And so we explain that to the officers, and most of them are good with it. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people won't understand how much licensing and requirements and in-service training does take place to stay current when it comes to securing a private investigator license. No, I'm, and I'm good with that. I mean, you got some states, I think uh, Colorado is one of them that, unless they've changed recently, has no licensing. And I like the fact that we're licensed. I like the fact that DPS state police regulate us. Uh, I just opened a Fort Worth office and a few months ago, and they've already been out there to inspect it and to make sure we, we have our ducks in a row. And I'm good with that because there's a lot of uh, folks out there that say they're PIs that are not licensed, they're not insured, they don't know what they're doing. So I like the oversight. Rob, what is the one thing that people would be surprised about in the course of your duties as a private investigator? Everybody, you know, has grown up watching TV shows like Magnum PI. I know I'm dating myself with that one, but what? <laughs> I remember that one. <laughs> I'm sure you do. Uh what do people think when they hear you're in this line of work? Well, uh, probably a couple of different things. Uh, a lot of people have the opinion that PIs are kind of, it's kind of a sleazy business and that you'll do whatever it takes. And there are people out there that will, but not reputable investigators. So that's one aspect. Another aspect is they expect the impossible at times through technology and all that. <laughs> They think it's easy and it's not. Uh, but with that said, I really enjoy the technology. We're, we're pretty heavy into forensics and uh, tracking and that kind of thing. And it's made our job, made us much more effective. So people do tend to go by what they see on TV and they sometimes think you can do more than you can do. And also that you can do things that actually we can't legally do. So. Uh, I guess that's how I would respond to that. It's just, it's not like it is on TV, but with that said, it's pretty neat with the uh, tools that we have now. And I assume, are you driving around in a Ferrari? Uh, no, I actually have an Escalade. <laughs> <laughs> I have to have something I can put my clients in. I don't, I don't do a lot of surveillance myself anymore unless it's a, uh, resort location I want to go to. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next time you get one of those assignments, give me a shout and I'll tag along. Uh, that'd be fun. <laughs> well, Rob, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? I guess the only other thing I could think of is, uh, it's not a big deal, but uh, my investigators often ask me, what do I do if I think I've been spotted? And that's one area that I said, look, if you think you've been spotted, you pull off and let's regroup. 
because the last thing our clients need is for us to get detected. And usually people can't be sure if, if you're following them, if you get off quick enough. And so, uh, that's an area that, that I feel strongly about. Uh, but other than that, I think we've uh, pretty much covered it. Well, thank you so much, Rob, for being back on the Ontic Protective Intelligence Podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. Anytime. This episode was brought to you by the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.co slash center. Again, that's ontic.co slash center. It was produced by AJ McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smokin' Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.co slash center for more information. I'm Fred Burton. Thanks for listening.